to the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. Welcome to you all. If I could, uh, if I could call us to order. Uh, I want to uh, welcome you. I'm Alex Jones. I'm director of the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy. Um, very glad to have you with us. Uh, and especially glad to have uh, uh, Dahlia Lithwick. Uh, those of you who are, uh, you know, fans of Slate know that she writes and now does podcasts on the Supreme Court and on the judiciary and on the sort of the legal climate, really, in all kinds of ways, uh, very interestingly. Dahlia is really quite extraordinary in, in a couple of ways, in my opinion. She is, as far as I know, the only sort of online journalist who has won a National Magazine Award for print, effectively. That's not something that anybody else has done that I know of. And I think it goes to the quality of her work and the sort of, uh, um, not only the, the, the quality of it in terms of being um, informed and authoritative, but uh, she also has you know, a way of putting the legal issues that makes them very compelling and interesting to, to read. I was looking at um, one of my favorites was a, uh, a, a column about the conservative justices at the Supreme Court and Obamacare, and she was talking about how they believed in the land of the free circa 1804. <laughs> now, I will leave it to her to sort of uh, fill in the blanks there, but in any event, Dolly, we're very glad to have you with us, and uh, the floor is yours. Okay. Well, th I want to thank um, Alex, I want to thank uh, Tim Bailey, who wrangled me here. Uh, it requires literally thousands of emails to me to get one response, so um, he should be given a raise. Um, and, and I am um, going to talk, I'm going to try to talk for 10 minutes, as was my mandate, so I can take lots of questions, but I'm going to, um, in that 10 minutes, try to communicate something that I've noticed about, um, I think, a very, very tense and increasingly fraught relationship between uh, the Supreme Court and the media, but not just the media. I, I come to it uh, as an online person. Uh, and believe it or not, there's only about three of us credentialed as online people at the court. The court, I think, is still hoping this online thing is a passing fad, <laughs> and we're going to go back to, like, carrier pigeons. And, um, they, 1804. They, yeah, I mean, I think it, 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 there's a, a real anxiety um, in the courts, uh, the way the court thinks about the new media, and I'm going to try to talk about that. Um, but, but I also will just leave heaps of time for your questions, and then uh, if I don't fully get to flesh out uh, my cause for concern, uh, we can maybe talk about it in the Q&A. But, you know, I, I've been covering the court. This is my 15th year. That still makes me, by about 40 years, the youngest person on the beat. It's a, it's a, it's a beat that, much like the justices themselves, you're carried out you know, toes first. Nobody willingly leaves this beat. People stay on it for decades uh, for good reason. It's a, a phenomenal beat. Uh, I always go out of my way to say it's a phenomenal beat for women. Uh, there are no crises or emergencies unless a justice dies or retires. You can plan years in advance, and that's a, a nice thing if you have uh, little kids at home, as I do. 
Um, but I think that, that the court is, is extremely, and I would say institutionally, uniquely anxious about the press. And it's in a very, very difficult situation with the press because the court has no uh, real meaningful press arm of its own. The court has long taken the posture that everything you need to know about us uh, you can read in our opinions, in the four corners of our opinions. And so there is a, a press office at the court, but but it's full of people who don't, uh, with all due respect, do a whole lot. Uh, because the justices don't give a lot of speeches. They certainly don't tell you when and where they're speaking. Uh, the press office, you can certainly ask for interviews and occasionally you'll be granted one. But it's not, uh, uh, the, the justices, qua justices, don't do a lot of reacting with the, the Supreme Court and interacting with the Supreme Court press. Uh, and I think, as is the case in all uh, deeply unhealthy relationships where the two parties uh, both love and need each other and also loathe each other, it just makes for very, very complicated uh, dynamics. And this goes back, by the way, to uh, the founding. This isn't new. John Marshall himself, Chief Justice John Marshall himself, uh, made a point of saying, quote, the court lacks a legitimate means of uh, ingratiating itself with the people. The court had to initially pay to have opinions printed up so that the American public knew what they were doing. But institutionally, it's mystified. It's quite deliberately mystified. It likes being mystified. And so it relies on the press to both demystify what it does, but also it really hates that we often cover them as people, as political beings. So it's just an extremely anxious relationship. And I think the justices feel, I would say, more and more as though they want to be in this conversation with the American people and I think the advent <coughs> of the new media has really ramped up that feeling that they don't like to be talked about but they also don't really like the American people and so it's just a very very complicated <laughs> thing uh, to say you know I want to be in this conversation I don't uh, want to have everything mediated by way of Adam Liptak and Nina Totenberg but also uh, if I talk every time I talk I get in trouble because I say something intemperate and I think the justices have become increasingly mistrustful uh, so I think that that I guess what I would just say as an overarching sort of framing idea is that I think the court is uniquely dependent on the press to explain what it does in sort of workmanlike, coherent ways, because most Americans do not read 157-page opinions, and even if they do, they do not understand them. And so the court is very, very dependent on the media to serve as ambassadors, but they really, really don't think we do it very well. And the last thing I would say is I think there's another paradox built into the relationship between the court and the <coughs> press. And that is, and this is, uh, I would commend to you if you're interested in it, Professor Ronell Anderson-Jones at Utah Law School <coughs> has written really powerfully about the extent to which the court can praise and celebrate the press in a sort of a, an abstract way. And this is a very, very press-revering court. And yet individually, Justice Brennan happily would write expansively about press freedom, but like individually, Justice Brennan once punched a reporter. And I think that that's a template for, you know, you can be simultaneously very, very approving of what the press does and very for transparency and very for this branch of government that acts as a watchdog and also do everything you possibly can to hamper the press in doing its work. And that's what we see truly every day at the court. So just very, very briefly, I think 
one of the problems the court has is that if there was one story that they would like me to write every day and twice on Friday, it would go like this. An oracular body of non-political, wise people, yet again, delivered a brilliant opinion today. <laughs> because that kind of goes to what they need to do in order to shore up their legitimacy as a branch of government. It can't be reported on as a political branch. Every time you say, appointed by Bill Clinton, appointed by Ronald Reagan, a little justice inside loses his wings. They hate, <laughs> they hate the narrative that says they are the sum of their political viewpoints. But our editors love that narrative, and that's the, every time I write a piece, my editor says, make sure you flag who appointed uh, that person, because it's a, a good shorthand for the political story they want to tell. So I think I just want to say that the court response to you know, a, a, a public that and a, and a media that is very interested in politics, in gossip, what people really want to read is the brethren. And it's not an accident that there was only one, the brethren. There will never be another book that has massive inside scoops and reporting about the court. Because right after The Brethren was published, uh, I think the clerks were pretty much told, we will take you out back and like gouge your eyes out if you ever talk to a reporter again. And that's the reason the press doesn't get leaks. There's been in my career one, and only one leak, and that was uh, John Roberts switching his vote in the healthcare cases that Jan Crawford was able to report. But nothing is leaked, not Bush v. Gore, not even the outcome of the healthcare cases and clerks don't talk and justices don't talk and those of us who get interviews with justices will I think be quick to say that they say to us what they said to the last person and the person before and the person before that there are no scoops on this beat so just briefly how has the court responded to this sort of feeling of being uh, uh, shamed and I think uh, belittled and politicized by the press um, you know, I'm allowed to take into oral argument one piece of paper and one pen. I can't bring in a tape recorder. Uh, audio of argument, and we can talk about the audio policy because I think it's a fantastic template for how the court controls the media, but audio is available at 5 o'clock on Fridays where news goes to die. And so if you want to use the audio for, say, your uh, radio reporter for my uh, podcast, you have to wait until 5 o'clock on Friday and scoop it up off the court's website and hope that people are interested in weak old news. There's obviously no video of the Supreme Court, this despite the fact that every single state uh, in the Union now has experimented, I think, successfully with video. Um, uh, Note-taking has been allowed by the public only since 2002. Uh, the transcripts became available immediately only since 2006. So until 2006, if you came out of an oral argument and you were trying to determine whether Justice Kennedy or Justice Stevens said that gobsmacking extraordinary thing, you would hope that Linda Greenhouse heard better than you did, but it was we were wrong all the time. Um, and and uh, just, justices don't release their interviews, their speeches. They, you cannot get texts of most of their speeches. Their schedules are not released. They'll sort of pop up in Austria saying something astounding, uh, but you'll never be alerted to it. Um, and and uh, decision days, when decisions are handed down at the court, are the most extraordinary circus you will ever see. 
news <coughs> is being released, important critical news is being released in uh, the single most insane manner I've ever seen. And I'll just tell you how the healthcare, the Obamacare cases were released so you can compare it to how normal institutions release news. Um, you had three choices the day the Obamacare decisions came down. We knew they were coming down that day because only because it was the end of the term. Otherwise, you don't know when cases are coming down. You sit there and lurk and hope that today is the day. Uh, that day we knew it was the last day of the term. You had the choice, quite literally, of sitting inside the chamber, the main chamber, in which case you could write and you could see, but you couldn't leave. So you had to sit there as the justices read their opinions and their dissents. By the time you left, not only had you missed the Twitter wave, but you'd actually missed the TV wave, the mistaken TV wave, where they initially <laughs> reported it wrong, then correct. All that had happened. By the time I left the chamber, I chose to go with that route. It was old news. You could be in another room where you could hear audio of the justices announcing the decision, and you could leave. You couldn't write. But you could leave once you figured out what was going on, but you couldn't come back. So you could hear them argue, uh, announcing. That's how people got it wrong, was they thought they heard John Roberts announcing the majority opinion. They said, ah, it's going down. They ran out to file their stories. Um, or you could be in a room where you could neither see nor hear, <laughs> but you could read the opinion. So like, think of it as the monkeys, right? Hear no evil, speak no evil, see no evil. You had to determine which handicap you wanted to operate under as a journalist. And some um, news organizations were lucky enough to have three and four people to put in one of each room. But a lot of the reason people got it wrong is because this is not the way I don't think you report uh, huge, huge, massive news. And there, you know, obviously there's no real reason for this. I mean, the court could make this easier and simpler. Uh, they choose to not um, do so. So I just want to close by saying, because I think this is, this is awfully important. I think that when you hear how the justices talk about the media today, and this really is the one issue on which an otherwise polarized court is absolutely in lockstep. They think we're a bunch of gossips. The, uh, Justice Thomas has called us a bunch of smart aleck commentators and snot-nosed brats. Justice Scalia has said of the Supreme Court press corps, all they care about is was that a nice old lady and was that a scuzzy guy? And Justice Ginsburg, quoting uh, Justice Frankfurter, has said, you'd think they could at least get it as accurate as reporters reporting the World Series. So really, universally, they think we get it wrong all the time. And I think that I just want to end by saying, I have seen an enormous and I think worrisome uptick, not just in you know, the court locking its front doors last year, the court cordoning off the entire marble area so that uh, folks can't protest. But an, a huge, uh, the court refusing to credential SCOTUS blog, which is unofficially the only place you can go to to get uh, breaking court news. But in addition to all the sort of systemic ways that I think the court is pushing back on the press, I just want to flag for you that in opinion after opinion, you hear justices talking about the media, particularly the online media, in ways that suggest that we are this terrifying, feral beast that exists only to disrupt privacy and to hurt them. And I could quote from any of Justice Breyer, who's talked a lot about this, Justice Alito, who's incredibly sensitive to this. Uh, but I'm just going to quote, and this isn't picking on anyone, Clarence Thomas talking in an internet case about privacy and the internet and the media. And he simply says, quote, 
The state of technology today creates at least some pro probability that signers of any referendum will be subject to threats, harassment, or reprisals once their personal information is disclosed. And then he says, the advent of the internet enables rapid dissemination of information need needed uh, to threaten and harass anyone whose name appears on a referendum. And that's the language that is imported into cases about disclosure of names of donors. That's the language that is imported into uh, some of the, the cases about free speech and uh, uh, violent video games is the idea that the internet just exists to make you a target. And there's lots of language from Justice Alito saying within one second, if your name is on the web, they will find you, they will know where your kids go to school, they will track your car, and they will come and get you. And I think that you can sort of laugh it off and say, you know, they're old. Although it's not, in fact, the old justices who are most anxious, I think, about the new media. I think that the truth is that they have experienced the media particularly the new media, as uniquely assaultive, uniquely violative of their privacy. And I think that they have not just lashed back institutionally, but I really fear it's starting to leach into the doctrine, the way they think about free speech and the way they think um, about reporters. And that's the piece that scares me a lot. And uh, I think I want to just close by saying that it's not an accident in my view that the two justices who are most anxious and I think worried about the effect of the media, particularly television and the, the internet on privacy are the justices who had the hardest time at their confirmation hearings. And so I think that Clarence Thomas and Sam Alito, both of whom would probably tell you that their confirmation hearings were the most, the singular most humiliating and shaming experiences of their lives. And Sam Alito, I think, still brags that he crosses the street so he doesn't have to walk on the Senate side. Um, but I think that when you experience, particularly if you come up as a judge and you haven't uh, been subject to intense media scrutiny, I think that it, when you experience the first brush you have with the media in this deeply, I think, assaultive and privacy invasive context of confirmation hearings, it's probably not an accident that you think that every reporter you credential, every online reporter you give a pass to is going to be part of this cabal that exists to destroy and humiliate you. So I'm going to, I know that was a lot, but I will end there and then um, happily take questions about anything that I said. Well, <coughs> I'm going to ask the first couple and then we'll open it up if I may. Uh, First question is, do the, do the justices drink the Kool-Aid as soon as they arrive? I mean, this seems to be a cultural thing that you would think would be evolving with new justices, but my sense is that you're saying that they all basically adopt the, the paranoia of their predecessors immediately. Well, I think that it depends on which Kool-Aid. Uh, the, the most interesting Kool-Aid to me is the no cameras in the courtroom Kool-Aid. So if I were to parse what you're saying, I would say, you know, both Sotomayor and Kagan were expressly asked at their confirmation hearings, you know, is there any reason not to have televisions in there? This is insane. This is a branch of government. Can we have TV cameras in there? And both of them seemed very, very open to it. And in fact, Kagan um, gave a very, very eloquent uh, speech saying, having been Solicitor General and seen that this is a teachable moment, it's so important for people to be in there and watching it within a year. Boom. No cameras. So that flip happens. How do they explain to themselves that they're complaining about the way the 
this stuff is reported, and then they make it so very, very difficult to report actually, you know, accurately. It, I, I think they explain it to themselves because in their head there is this platonic perfect reporter, and we'll call that reporter them, who would write it, you know, who would write it fairly and accurately. But I think that, you know, just for instance, uh, Justice Scalia, when he's asked why no video, why at least no audio, his answer truly is because it will turn into snippets and sound bites. This is all code for John Stewart. Um, you know, it's code for The Daily Show. But they, he really does, and, and it's a, an amazing thing to hear somebody in your government say people don't understand and they won't understand. And so one thinks, I think this is under your question, if people can't understand, shouldn't you just show them gavel to gavel? I mean, having Adam Liptak interpret it can't help. But the answer is no, because, you know, something else is going to come along that's going to explain it better. And you're right, it makes no sense. But I think that truly, time after time, the response is, if people want to know what we do, they need to read all 300 pages of the opinion and they will understand. Anything less than that is to diminish what we do. And my other question is that I'm eternally mystified by Justice Kennedy, the one who seems to be the pivot point in every important decision these days. I don't understand who he is or what he is. Can you explain that to me? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure even Justice Kennedy could answer that. Uh, I, I mean, I think he is in an amazing accident of history where he becomes the fulcrum for a court that is really the most polarized court we've seen in a long time. Uh, it simply was the case that when Sandra Day O'Connor was on the court, there were two swing justices. Now, they didn't swing much. They were both moderate Republicans, but at least I think there was some, a little play in the joints there. There's, there's no play in the joints now. I think that there are four liberals and four very conservative conservatives, and Kennedy is the decider. And you see term after term after term, he's the one who's in the majority most of the time. And I think the short answer to Kennedy is that he is very, very much uh, a, a Republican, a sort of old school conservative. Uh, he unfailingly opposes affirmative action. He unfailingly uh, opposes abortion, although he was the one of the deciders in the Casey opinion uh, that preserved Roe. But time after time, I think he tends to side with the right wing of the court. And really the mystery of Kennedy is why he has been the sort of great white hope of same-sex marriage in this country. I mean, the sort of the interesting outlier is that he has been incredibly solicitous of gay rights. Uh, but I think the short answer to Kennedy is that he really uh, thinks in terms of sort of historic grandeur. He takes this uh, job extremely seriously. He writes for the ages. Sometimes that works out for him. Sometimes it does not. Some of the craziest passages in Supreme Court um, doctrine are Kennedy passages that make no sense, but they read like Shakespeare. But I, I really do think that he is the decider right now. And, uh, you know, he's an extremely conservative decider who and on he, gay rights defects. And he really does not think money has anything to do with politics. So, so this is a really... I mean, I think the problem, if I had to identify the problem, sort of not so much as a journalist, but just as somebody who watches the court, is that you have nine justices that went to two law schools. They overwhelmingly uh, 
come from New York. We've got five from New York or the New York suburbs. Uh, we have only two who even come from the center of the country. Uh, their clerks come from nine law schools, most. So we have a court, you know, think about, you know, the, the crazy old days of, of, you know, Justice Douglas and Justice Black and having, you know, elected representatives on the court and having people who had interesting storied careers before they came to the court. Now everybody, every single one of them has come out of the federal bench. They have come out of service for the government, working uh, for the executive branch or academia. So they came from incredibly rarefied jobs where people told them yes, and then they got a really rarefied job where more people tell them yes. <coughs> but they don't really have a tremendous depth of experience. You're never going to get another ACLU uh, attorney uh, confirmed to the court under the current, and we should talk about confirmations, but under the way the confirmation system works now, you will never get another Ginsburg. You will never get a death penalty lawyer. You will <coughs> never get somebody who can't, comes up through legal aid. And as a result, I think that it's, it's, you know, none of them know how money works in politics. And it's not just Citizens United. It's simply understanding, you know, how confidence in your electorate uh, is shaped by multi-million dollar secret donations. And that's just gone. So I, I guess the story I would tell, which is not a fair story, but it's funny, is that one of my favorite cases involved the justices trying to determine whether if you were riding a Greyhound bus, you had a reasonable expectation of privacy when uh, officials would squeeze your bag that was in the baggage compartment overhead. And I remember just looking around thinking, when is the last time any of these people have been on a Greyhound bus? And if you force them to show you where the Greyhound bus station is in DC, could they find it? And it's not to crack on them. There's something to be said for this thoroughbred court that we have, but we have bred out. We have bred in fantastic intelligence and certainly judicial acumen and a lot of words. I mean, this is the writingest court in uh, you know American history. They can't stop making opinions longer. But I think we've bred out really a depth of experience. And I think that we also, and this is just emblematic of where we are, I think, as a country in judicial appointments, we use race and gender diversity as a proxy for job diversity and diversity of experience. And I think we lose something. I think we do that at a cost. Let me open it first to students and then, uh, and then to others. Hi, I'm Natalie Brand. I'm a mid-career student and my background is in journalism. My question, I know the, the issue of cameras in the courtroom has made headlines, but are there any other efforts or movements among the Supreme Court press corps to try to address some of the concerns in lack of access? I, I, I mean, yes. But I think the court has a mandate that is unequivocal. They determine all of these policies themselves. And cameras in the court is this one interesting place where, you know, our inspector for years would have a bill that we, they were going to force cameras into the Supreme Courts, whether the justices liked it or not. It actually raises huge separation of powers questions, and I don't know that, you know, they literally said we are going to shut the lights and starve you out unless, uh, 
uh, you allow cameras in there. But there's just no leverage. And so I think you will get, you know, this is my favorite story. Uh, again, it's not as good as the Greyhound bus story. But, you know, there was a time when Linda Greenhouse of the New York Times famously went to Chief Justice Rehnquist and said, listen, on these hand down days at the end of June where you hand down three and four opinions in one day, and they're all 120 pages, and we are trying to absorb them and get them into some manageable form for the, the papers. And this was at, back in the day when you just had to do that for 5 o'clock, not for Twitter. Um, and she said, couldn't you just space out decisions and hand them down, you know, sort of some on Monday, some on Tuesday, some on Wednesday, so that we can get our heads around them and get them right? And his response quite literally was, you know, you can just decide to just only report on one on Monday. And then wait till Tuesday and report on Tuesday <laughs> as though that came down on Tuesday. Which is right, you're laughing because you're journalists. When you tell this story to judges, they're all like, yeah, you could just do that. <laughs> Why don't you just do that? So I think that this just utter lack of awareness that there are imperatives that go, and you know, horrible, awful imperatives that <coughs> rhyme with Twitter, you know, that go with covering the court today. Um, when, when the Supreme Court uh, handed down the ACA cases, the website crashed. And so five million people went to SCOTUS blog. Now, if the Supreme Court can't keep its website, you know, people were refresh, 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 right? This is a big deal. So I just think the court really doesn't think that these tensions or these uh, sort of urgent imperatives are their problem. And I think that when you say to them, there's a cost when we get it wrong, they say that cost is on you not on the court. So I think that's the problem. Yes. Hi, I'm Lulu Farrell, and I report calls in China too. I'm so curious about how do you think of the pleasure, I mean, um, do you think the judges <coughs> in the Supreme Court will be influenced by the pleasure of the press? And how do you think of the, ple the pleasure? And do you think we should reduce the pressure? And our should make a better use of So it's it's a real question. The justices uh, would tell you that there's no pressure on them and they don't um, care what reporters say. At the same time, for many years, there was something in the United States known as the greenhouse effect, and not the one that has to do with carbon emissions, but the one that has to do with Linda at the New York Times, and there was a widely held belief that Linda Greenhouse, who was the Pulitzer you know, Prize-winning uh, New York Times reporter, uh, would write a piece and the justices would scurry to please her and conform uh, their decisions to her views. And people, I think, genuinely believed, uh, probably on both sides of the aisle, that there was a little bit of that uh, going on. I, I, I don't think that the press has that any kind of that direct influence on the court. And in fact, several of the justices brag about never reading any press, and they don't care what the media says. And in fact, Chief Justice Roberts recently said he doesn't even read the law reviews anymore. Um, you know, that they, they just have completely immunized themselves from that kind of pressure. Now that said, I think that the court, you know, as is evidenced by, you know, the, the ACA decision and other decisions is obviously subject to some pressure to not be insane. Um, 
Citizens United notwithstanding. But I think there is some sense of, you know, you, you can't get too far outside uh, uh, the bounds of what the American public will tolerate. But I don't think that that correlates directly uh, to what they read on any given day in a press. In the press, I think there are certainly cases, and I think probably the Chief Justice's vote in the health care decision to, to uphold Obamacare, and clearly he switched his vote, had something to do with a sense of the American people can't tolerate this level of um, court hands-on, you know, uh, upending the, the president's signature legislation. But I don't think there's a, any kind of sort of one-to-one -one correlation between any one reporter or any one uh, uh, publication and the way the justices do business. And I would go so far as to say that I think the court is now so polarized that the justices will happily say, you know, the liberal justices will happily say, I only read the New York Times, the conservative justices happily, you know, Clarence Thomas said the best day of his career was when he canceled his subscription to the Washington Post. So they, they quite proudly say that they completely filter what they read, and I think that's probably a bigger problem than pressure. Yes. I guess, so do you feel like that the polarization of the court, is that come from themselves in feeling on one side? Do you feel like it comes from the polarized political structure of the United States? And you're mentioning uh, confirmations and how that plays into it. But do you feel like it just comes from that? Is there something else that's causing such a polarized court and something that we could change to actually get some less political decisions and more actual legal decisions? I, I mean, I, th I simply think the court reflects a polarized country and that you can't have, you know, a Congress that is this polarized and an electorate that is this polarized and not have a court that's this polarized. I do think that, you know, until uh, Sandra Day O'Connor was the first confirmation hearing that was televised. For most of Supreme Court history, confirmation <laughs> hearings were two days and you didn't show up to your hearing. I think Brandeis was the first one. Frankfurter was the first justice who showed up only because uh, it was becoming clear his confirmation was in trouble if he didn't show up. Uh, but, you know, justices didn't even go, and it was done in a couple of hours, and they looked at your papers. And I think, having sat through confirmation hearings, um, I wish with a flask, because they're so awful. <laughs> they are so degraded and cartoonish. Um, but having sat through them, I think that it is inevitable that they are going to polarize the conversation around the judiciary. And just five days of relentless questioning about things that these people will not answer uh, is just, it's, it's insane. And I think the last thing I would say about the confirmation hearings and polarization is I think it's not an accident. It took me a while to realize that newspapers don't assign their Supreme Court reporters to confirmation hearings. They assign their political reporters. This is a, a congressional enterprise and any uh, accident will, you know, correlation to constitutional law is inadvertent. But this is not about the law. This is about scoring points at home. And literally until you've seen senators standing in front of a camera just talking about their issues that have nothing to do with the court or this nominee, you realize this is not helping the process. So that's a depressing answer to a depressing question. Do you see this to change, though? Uh, do I? I, th I think that 
I mean, changing polarization on, on the Hill. I, I think it's probably outside my pay grade to fix it, but I, I do actually think in a strange way that, and, and, and maybe this is an answer to the audio question, I think that what the court fails to realize, and this is what they were doing for years, starting with Bush v. Gore, the court would release same-day audio only in big, important cases. So you may remember sitting in your car at 11.30 listening to Bush v. Gore, the Michigan Affirmative Action cases, Heller the guns case and thinking, hey, this is cool. I wish I could hear this every day. And people like me who are idiots wrote pieces saying, don't only release audio in the cases that come down 5-4. Pick the ERISA <coughs> cases. You know, do all of the endless boring cases that the, the court comes out 8-1. to one. And so the court made exactly the wrong choice when it did same-day audio. It did all of the abortion and affirmative action and uh, gay rights cases. And that's, I think, why when they decided to go to the Fridays after 5, you know, 5 p.m. release, it was to reduce that. But I do think that one way to show that 99% of what the court does is not purely ideological, it's not Citizens United, it's not Heller, the guns case, would be to show people how boring it is. Uh, but that message seems not to get across. Yes, sir. Um, Jeffrey Tubin had a great article in The New Yorker this week about the president's efforts to remake the federal judiciary at the lower levels. So on one hand, you have sort of a more liberal circuit court system, and you have probably a conservative Supreme Court that's not going to change its compositions too much in the next 10 years or 15 years. Do you see a court that has quite the appetite for judicial adventurism, stepping in more to the circuit court decisions and overturning them, playing a greater role as the ideologies move a little bit further apart in the next decade? So there were so many things that were interesting in that article. Um, you know, I, I, think, I think the idea of the court reaching out and taking issues that are not fully uh, prepared for the court. Again, Citizens United is a great example of that. That was argued and briefed as a much narrower case. Uh, so was the health care cases. Uh, so I think there's no question that this court is willing to reach out and take uh, cases that are not completely squarely before it. I also think that uh, circuit court judges have started writing these dissents that are basically dear you know, court, please take this. This is unprecedented, right? You have to now look at circuit court dissents to see ju judges there saying, you know, use this as a vehicle to to move this issue along faster. So there's no question that the court is doing that. Just one other quick thing on um, the Tubin article. I, I can't, I would be remiss if we didn't talk about Ruth Bader Ginsburg for a minute, because this is a media phenomenon that I fail entirely to grasp what has happened. And Tubin asks President Obama, you know, it's so interesting, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is marching around telling people you could never get, you would never put up another Ruth Bader Ginsburg and I'm not retiring because even if you did put one up, you wouldn't get her confirmed. So, And the president basically is like, I'm terrified of Ruth. If she says she's staying, you know, I'm not, I'm not telling her what to do. Uh, but I do think that what Justice Ginsburg has done in the last couple of years, where she has really, I think, in an unprecedented way, used the media, and not just the media, but, I mean, Tumblr and Twitter, and she's not obviously um, working the levers of her RBG, you know, persona on, on uh, Tumblr, but she oh, yes. has 
moved completely into this space of being the most senior, you know, she's 81 years old. She weighs like, what, 60 pounds? And yet she is this force. And she's not talking only to Adam Liptak, right? She is talking. I think that reporters who like amble by looking for the bathroom get buttonholed for interviews now. I mean, there's nobody she's not talking to. And she's using the media in a way that I have never seen, which is to basically say, the status quo at the court sucks. I can't get my five votes. So I am now going to talk directly to Americans, particularly American women, and tell them that they need to see Lily Ledbetter change the law. And I've never seen that happen. The fact that it's coming from this 81-year-old and that the president is like, I'm not telling her to retire. I hope she's there for 30 more years, but I'm scared of her, I think is really <laughs> emblematic of something fascinating that's going on with the new media, by the way, not the old media, that Ginsburg is gaming kind of beautifully. I have a question about your role as a journalist for a publication like Slate compared to the New York Times or Washington Post, where um, I guess your role isn't to break news on the Supreme Court so much as it is to analyze it and to you kind of can take the longer view. Um, so I was just curious kind of how you approach that compared to your colleagues like who are really there to get the news out kind of in a more broadcast way compared to a more niche audience that you have. I, I'm not 100% that sure that characterization is right. I mean, for one thing, there's not just not a lot of breaking news at the court. There are, there are arguments, which I go to. Um, and I have chosen, actually, to cover arguments as my principal mode because I think that arguments are covered um, not so interestingly. And so I try to do that as sports reporting, in effect. Um, and then there are decisions, and uh, those I try to cover the way, actually the way most of my colleagues do, which is to analyze what happened and drain out some of the personalities and the politics. Uh, I guess I think that what I understand the readers of Slate to want is that quality which is, you know, most of my colleagues come out of any given argument or a decision and say, Dahlia, here's what you should write, because I can't write it. And I think they feel incredibly constrained by, you know, and this is the other greenhouse effect, that there is just a very unitary mode of covering the U.S. Supreme Court. And, you know, with huge credit to Linda, but I think she invented a mode of covering the court that everybody has rushed to replicate. And I think as a consequence, the bandwidth is just not there the way it is for other beats. It's a pretty narrow bandwidth. And I have tried as hard as I could to, to work outside that bandwidth. So I don't think it's, it's, it's that it's more sort of long range or that it's more, I, it's certainly more colloquial. It certainly tries to say to people, this is urgently important and I want you to read this even though, uh, you know, it seems boring. But I think that, that I, I wouldn't say there's only, only one task. I would just say that the nice thing about being online is that I really feel that I can reach those people who may not be reading A1 um, when decisions come down. The other thing that I'm trying really hard to do with lesser and greater degrees of success, and it's one of the reasons we just launched the podcast, is to try to talk to people who don't think the court is comprehensible, who think that this is effectively science reporting and to try to say to them you if you graduated high school you know enough about the court to engage with it and so that's kind of what the project is let me open it up to uh, to others as well yes sir. I wonder do you see anything in the decisions the court have made with respect to the press uh, freedom of the press uh, confidentiality 
any of the lingering antagonism or love-hate-hate relationship uh, that you talked about? You know, they, there haven't been an enormous number of press decisions in the last, uh, you know, in, in the modern era. There are, and that's kind of why I'm citing uh, internet cases. I mean, I thought the one that I flag as the one that's a, a, a benchmark for me is when uh, the Prop 8 trial in California, so that was the same-sex marriage case, uh, was being uh, litigated in the district court, the Ninth Circuit had a project that they were going to let this be televised. And uh, the, the district court signed off on it, the circuit court signed off, Chief Judge Alex Kaczynski of the Ninth Circuit signed off, it was all ready to be televised, and the U.S. Supreme Court in a per curiam order pulled the plug. Um, and it is an order that actually tracks some of the language in Citizens United, in uh, Clarence Thomas's dissent in Citizens United, that is about all this anxiety that I was trying to describe to you about. You know, it's dangerous and witnesses are going to be harassed and threatened. There's literally language in that procurium order when the court says we're not going to film this that says let's pick something that's less controversial to film first. You know, we don't want to, we don't want to do it about this. Uh, so I think that's probably the example that I would use of the court thinking that, you know, oh my God, if we allowed this thing to go forward, even though everybody at every stage uh, was okay with it, then horrible, horrible outcomes are going to happen to justice, not just to these witnesses. And so I think that's probably the most recent example where I think the court is looking at the press as sort of deeply threatening and violative of the judicial process. And I, I couldn't understand, other than, as I said, some of this language that says, you know, once TV cameras are in there, the whole thing goes cattywampus, see Judge Ito. And I, I think that's, you know, the last, now this court, I should say, because I haven't said it, is the most speech protective court we've seen in decades, right? So if you want to make crush videos or violent video games or protest, uh, funerals as, you know, uh, an anti-homosexual advocate. This is an incredibly speech-protective court, but it's not, at least in recent decades, an incredibly press-protective court. So what about in shield, on the shield law? Is there any insight into that? The, I mean, this court isn't, the, those, those laws have not made, I mean, they're, they're, the, those cases are getting stuck in the appeals courts. Now, the court has declined to take some of, of the, you know, post-war uh, on terror cases. So we don't know where they think about that. But I, I think that, and I also think, I should say this also, I think that the most interesting underreported decision last term was the cell phones case, was Jones, where the court for the first time, A, showed that it had a real command of modern technology, and B, you know, in a clarion 9-0 decision, explain that it understood that cell phones are not the same as like the one that you die, you know, like they really understood it and the court has failed to understand technology uh, for a long time and I think there's a valence around that case of understanding privacy and understanding um, that had nothing to do with cell phones and that had everything to do with NSA surveillance. I think that case may be the harbinger of this is where the court is maybe thinking about some of those cases, but that's the best evidence we have so far that the court is trying to wrap its head around surveillance and, and um, 
privacy. And I think Ju Justice Sotomayor, who wrote uh, a concurrence in the case that had to do with um, putting GPSs without a warrant on a car, tried to flag for the court. We need to think about this stuff. We can't pretend that just because we drive, you know, 1802 car, 1805, is that what I said? You know, that this isn't an issue. So I actually think watch for Sotomayor to be, I think, the, 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 the one who is thinking hardest about those issues. Did you have yeah, so just to be provocative, uh, isn't part of the reason why the court is so threatened by the media is that the media exposes the court for what it actually is, right? Which is more often than not, or at least, <laughs> you know, often enough, a legislature of nine people. I mean, there's sort of literature on this going back decades. You know, even before in the 80s and 90s, there was a big fight between political scientists and law professors, right? Uh, the political scientists suggested that the Supreme Court would, if it ever came to it, that they would overturn a, uh, um, a, 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 they would overturn a presidential election, right? Um, you know, and I think that you've seen in the legal academy since Bush v. Gore sort of a, a shift more towards the you know the the grim assessment that that this isn't really unrealistic that they really that this really has um, this really has become more of a polarized uh, court and that precedent actually you know that often it's not the the justices ideological positions don't predict their their you know often predict as well or better as their past precedents. Um, I'm not sure the cleavage is is where you say it is. In other words, I actually think the legal academy is as victim to this Patty Hearst syndrome of thinking of the court as magic uh, as it's ever been. I don't see a huge shift post-Bush v. Gore. I think that the legal academy is as entrenched in the notion that the court is different and special as the court is, because otherwise they wouldn't be in the legal academy. And, you know, my joke for this has long been that we who cover the court try to be junior con law professors. In other words, you know, you can come out of an incredible oral argument where sparks are flying and Clarence Thomas is sleeping and Sotomayor <laughs> is interrupting and, you know, Alito's rolling his eyes and all this theater has happened. And literally, like, all of my colleagues will go, oh, my God, did you see what happened to the dormant commerce clause in there? I mean, that's what they are watching. <laughs> you know, they are watching the, 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 the law change. And they, I think, you know, in the, in the same manner that the legal academy does, does put an enormous amount of stock into the idea that the court is different. Uh, so I think that, you know, the cleft is between, clearly, you know, the political scientists who cover the court as a political institution. And, you know, every once in a while, at once every two years, I try to write about swing, swing justices because I think it's interesting. And legal academics don't write about that. There's no such thing, right? This is a political idea. And so I think, um, you know, part of the problem is, and there's one of my favorite books about this is by uh, Keith Bybee up at Syracuse, and his, you know, the title of his book is All Courts Are Political Except for When They're Not. And that's kind of my answer to your question, is I think we live smack in the interstices of a completely political institution that is also completely different. And it depends on which way you know, you want to lean if you want to be captive to the notion that, you know, and again, I think it's so important to highlight this is what the justices <coughs> say. Most of our decisions are 9-0. Most of them are 8-1. You know, you all are focused on the five or six that are 5-4 ideological decisions, but that's not what we do. But and so I think telling both those stories is part of the problem. So, Richard. Uh, 
Richard did tell us. Um, I, I read an interesting memoir by Michael Janeway of his father, Elliot Janeway, and Janeway's career from the Roosevelt through the Johnson administrations. And because it's an insider's account, he's quite candid about the political hands-on advising of the executive that a number of justices engaged in, Frankfurter, Brandeis, Douglas, Fortas. I mean, it's a long list. Is that still the one? No, I don't think so. And in fact, and why not? I, I read, I think it was, um, I think it was probably the, the, the Scorpions book that came out about the FDR court, about how these guys used to go and they'd play poker with FDR, right? Like they'd all just cross, pull off their robe, you know, roll up their sleeves. And, you know, Frankfurter was basically so enmeshed in these questions. And I, I thought about that when, do you remember when uh, Obama got sworn in by the Chief Justice, by John Roberts, and they, they screwed it up? Yeah. And do you know that they had to, when they redid it, when they readministered the oath in the Oval Office, Roberts had to sort of be mashed down in the back of the car so nobody could see him entering the White House? I mean, literally, they were like, okay, duck! <laughs> sir because you know the, 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 and he did I mean he was here and so I just think the era of you know and the, just the contrast to when they used to just amble over and hang out with the president um, it's really there is an absolute I think Chinese wall between uh, uh, you know the White House and the and the court and uh, I, I don't know the answer to why I think it has to do with optics I think it has to do with uh, it would look as though we were compromised in some way. I think maybe my, if I had, to the extent I have a global theory of it, I think that, um, you remember when um, Scalia was duck hunting with Dick Cheney and there was a call for him to recuse himself because there was this major um, uh, appeal about the, the task force, about the energy task force that he had chaired while also, um, you know, and, and uh, it was so interesting because I think the single most illuminating piece of Supreme Court writing comes from Justice Scalia in that case where he writes like je recuse I'm not <laughs> stepping down from this case despite all the calls to do it and strangely he sort of harkens back to that era he basically says I'm a Supreme Court justice he's a vice president who else am I supposed to pal around with you know what am I talk to the cafeteria workers and it's just a really interesting because it, it is it's sort of a, a, a slideshow of that life, even though that life is, is for all intents and purposes over. And so I, I loved that because I thought it was so honest, you know, that these are, the, these are my friends, these are my people. Um, but I also think just one other thing on this, um, and I feel like I'm being hard on uh, Justice Alito, but I think it's worth saying. I think one of the big shocks of Justice Alito's life was when he went to go speak at uh, the, an American Spectator event. And a citizen journalist with a camera took a picture, and the next day, right, it was this hugely compromising story about how can you go speak at a fundraiser for an ultra-conservative group. And Alito's response, again, was so illuminating. He said, why is this news? And I thought, well, of course it's news. It's news when you, you know, go to, if you're Sotomayor and you go to Costco, it's news. But I really think that the justices in some ways half live in a world where what they do is not scrutinized. And was it that they substituted ideology for politics? I mean, weren't those older justices doing politics and these judges are doing the ideology of politics? Certainly it's possible. I mean, I think that's, that's it's, 
that's as good a theory of mine. But I also think that these justices have finally, I think, come round to the notion that there are no private spaces anymore. And that I think that, you know, it's fascinating to me, right? J Justice Scalia famously was receiving a free speech award and confiscated the tape recorders of the reporters in the front of the <laughs> true story. Um, you know, and, and they've stopped doing that because I think they realize, and this was, you know, I think to me uh, really illuminated by Justice Clarence Thomas came and spoke at the Federalist Society at UVA and it was absolutely off the record. Nobody can report what happened. Politico had the speech up verbatim the next day. And so I think that just the justices are really, and I think it's part of this anxiety I'm trying to describe, they're really struggling with this idea that they think that when they clock out, people don't know. And they think that the press is the press. But neither of those things are true anymore. And I think that as they try to grapple with those questions, they're going to realize it's better to have a reporter in here who's a Supreme Court reporter with a tape recorder listening to my speech than have some springer, uh, stringer who happens to be in Montana trying to reconstruct what I said and no transcript. And so I think they're getting there, but I just think it's, it's, they're experiencing that as an assault on privacy. Celestine. Um, I just was wondering whether um, there aren't other constituencies who are pressing the court for this very, on this very issue. I mean, I would imagine that the legal community, that the, you know, that the, the people who have cases before them, whether they be business or corporate or whatever, would also care to have the record be accurate, timely, and efficiently <coughs> delivered. And, I mean, you mentioned Congress, that they wanted the, the cameras in the court, but that didn't go anywhere. Anyway, that's one question. The other is, I mean, doesn't Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who I didn't realize was such a kind of exception to this rule, what is her impact on her colleagues? I mean, do, and do we hear from her what somehow any enlightened view of why the debate is kind of stuck where it is? Uh, I mean, her. I th I'm fascinated to find out what her impact is. This is all very new. This has all come about in the last two, three years. She has, I think, kind of crossed one line because she started saying in the past month, you know whose fault it is on abortion? Kennedy. And I was like, wait a minute. Now she's actually trash-ducking her colleagues. And I was just like, she needs a handler. She needs somebody to tell her to stop. But so I don't know. I can't imagine that's good with abortion cases coming, you know, rattling toward the court. Uh, I don't know what the impact is. I think, look, it's, it's absolutely the case that 15 years ago justices didn't go on television. It is absolutely the case that, you know, between Sesame Street, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, you know, uh, Larry King, John Stewart, every one of the justices can't stop being on television right now. So I think there has been something of an effect whereby, and probably I think, you know, it's not Ginsburg who's driving it, I think it's Sotomayor. Because I think Sotomayor is the only one who's written this New York Times best-selling autobiography, right? If you read any other judicial book up until Sotomayor, it's like, here's this case from 1306 that I think is interesting, you know, and their four sales are to their mom on Amazon, right? <laughs> Nobody read those books, and suddenly Sotomayor writes this searing autobiography about her life and her, you know, dad and his alcoholism and her drug-addicted cousin. I mean, it's unbelievable, and people are buying it at Walmart. And this changes everything. So I actually think to the extent that there's a driver of opening up the court to being in the national conversation and to really, you know, Justice Scalia gave this extraordinary interview last year to Jen Senior at New York Magazine, right? He won't give that interview to Supreme Court people. And Jennifer Senior, who's, you know, 
a very, very good reporter on culture stuff and has written a book about parenting, suddenly gets him to sit down and what does he blurt out to her? You don't believe in the devil? What? You don't, that's the conversation. It's extraordinary. So I think that part of what is happening is they're sort of over, they're reaching past us you know, the, the, the reporters who cover the beat, and they're going and talking to Jon Stewart, and they're going and talking to uh, people at New York Magazine. I think that's also something that is really new and interesting. I don't know where that leads us. I know that most Supreme Court reporters are super upset that Scalia told Jen Sr. about the devil and not us. <laughs> <laughs> Got time for one more. Well, let me ask you, what do you think is going to happen uh, about Justice Ginsburg and about the future of the court. In a minute? Um, In a minute. Justice Ginsburg is not going to leave. If she was going to be pushed off the court, it would have happened last term. So she's in it now. Um, I think that we have four justices who are either 80 or about to turn 80. So we have a, a, a rapidly aging court. And I think it's going to entirely depend on who is the president and who steps down and whether this Senate, the new sort of uh, uh, Senate nuclear option will be extended to the court. So there's, I think, a lot of, of moving parts. I, I will, I guess if I had to predict one thing confidently, it's that when Justice Anthony Kennedy steps down, Armageddon. I don't know how, you know, you, you replace the swing voter uh, on a court. I think it's going to be horrifically ugly. Uh, but beyond that, you know, we, we are going to have a lot of vacancies in the next few years. And you should all read about the court <laughs> because it's really interesting. Dahlia, thank you. This is really interesting. Thank you.